Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Hey, we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. I got some family business we're going to take care of. First of all, if you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I'm one of the ministers here. We're glad you're with us. This is not going to be a typical morning. In fact, I'll tell you after first hour, it's a bit intense, but hold on, it's, it's for a reason. Uh, last week, when you came to the building, some very rightfully so, there was no offense taken, uh, have asked me why we didn't address what was going on in Charlottesville, Virginia. And there's several reasons, but we've, I've prepared some thoughts, and, and I'm going to share those thoughts with you with the support of our eldership, because I think it's important. First of all, we don't want to be a church that's led by the front page of the Joplin Globe. No disrespect intended to the Globe, New York Times, Boston Herald, call it whatever you want. Because the Word of God addresses many things. We'd like to just share these thoughts with the church and how we address it. The outbreak, the outbreak of racial violence is not new in our country's history. And it's completely unacceptable, no matter what era or reason it occurred. With the increasing awareness that media produces, it appears to be at the center stage of our minds all the time, increasing at great risk. The outrage it brings about and the retaliation it produces causes us to take a moment this morning and address it from a Christian worldview. And I do this with the support of our eldership. See, one of the advantages of preaching through the Bible as we are through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and synchronizing them, is that the words of Jesus address these issues in due time. And what we want to go through is we experience through obedience what Jesus is teaching. There's no better place than for us right now in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus describes the ethics of kingdom people, his followers. And that is that they value each and every person. I chose to delay the statement we're making today uh, from last week as a church leadership until this week because I wanted to be prayerful and to deal with the underlying truth rather than just the outrage or the fear and sadness of last weekend and has become even more common since then. But let's be crystal clear. This is what's important for us to talk about today as a church. This is not a Democrat-Republican issue. It's not a conservative-liberal issue. It's not an American foreigner issue. It's not a white, black, brown, green, or blue issue. This is and always will be a heart issue that reveals our soul. I'm saddened that even in the church it's become so politicized that hatred, disrespect, and social disdain can be based on differences and philosophical agendas. We should not and cannot encourage, ignore, or agree with any position that allows us to feel superior or to make someone else feel inferior. When we are confronted with moments privately, socially, or on a national scale, our response must be to protect the dignity of all human beings. We are to love those, every one of those. We must say no to giving ourselves or anyone in our presence the right to devalue a person for their religious beliefs, their political belief, their nationality, their gender, their skin color. You see, the truth of the gospel is this. There is no superior race. We are all just human beings made in the image of God. There is only one superior person who's ever lived, and he came to love all mankind, all genders, all races, all ethnicities. 
And he did not love them in a political way, and he never discriminated. Those who use the cloak of Christianity to support acts that devalue human life must stop and immerse themselves in what Jesus actually said. You see, the good news of the kingdom is open to all men, all women, all tribes, and all tongues. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church and he said the words, these words, 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and gave us, you and me, the church, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. It's pretty clear. So what do we do with this? I don't live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I don't live in Boston, Massachusetts, or Chicago, Illinois, or some of these powder keg places where racial issues are, just seem epidemic. But I do live in the four states area. And so because I don't live in Virginia, we may easily dismiss ourselves and say, there's nothing for me to do. I can't solve that problem. No, you can't solve that problem, but you can be a minister of reconciliation in the community in which you live. And this is what Jesus has asked us to do. Now, you're really quiet, so let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you agree that we're to bring peace wherever we are? This is what the church is to do. So what are we supposed to do? It'd be really easy for me. And, and if you feel shame this morning, you don't understand our heart for this. This is just a conversation between Christians who can make a difference. We have a light in a dark world that the world needs to know is real, not just talked about on Sundays. So what can we do? Well, I was just listing some things this week. We can pray for peace, but please understand the peace that's needed in this world will never be produced through politics. It can only come when we choose to love each person in the same way that we were loved by Jesus. We can grieve for those who have ever and are presently suffering under the hands of those who use power to protect their own interest. We can grieve and repent personally for the times each and every one of us has devalued, mocked, or mistreated another human being based on differences, ignorance, or fear. We can pray for God to work through us to fight for the disenfranchised, the suppressed, and the mistreated. We can stand and hold up those who are not given justice and speak out and acts in ways that bless the broken. We, we must risk our own comfort. We must better our own attitudes and our own safety to defend the widow, the foreigner, the poor, and the outcast. When I was a kid, I was taught this at a very young age, and most of you were too. We used to sing red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. What I'd like us to do is just take a moment a moment for each one of us in silent prayer to ask God to allow us each to know those moments that we can bring healing, peace, and justice. Let's ask God to soften our hearts first so we can actually see the brokenhearted around us and do something in a loving act in the name of Jesus to bring about real peace. Let's pray. God, we need your help to love like Jesus loved. And when we don't know what to do, God, teach us to love like Jesus loved us. Broken, ignorant, fearful, prejudiced, angry. 
when we went through those emotions, Jesus, you, you taught us what real love was. I pray as agents of reconciliation that we will use your love and your grace and your mercy to introduce people to the hope that we have. Because God, we realize we're not superior to anybody, nor are we inferior to anybody. We're all made in your image. And Jesus, you came to bring peace, to bring hope, to bring life. Jesus, teach us when to stand up. Teach us when to say something. Teach us when to fall down in prayer. And teach us when to keep our mouth shut. Teach us when to stand up for the gospel and offer people the hope that changed our lives. God, may we be a church that does not feel shame, but may we be a church that feels hope and offers hope and life and love to those who believe that nobody cares, nobody has their back, nobody counts them as human. God, forgive us when we've failed. Inspire us to live lives of hope in the truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, are you scared of me now? Pretty intense morning. You're all coming. I came to be encouraged and you're yelling at me. No, we're not. It's okay. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about what we talked about at the beginning. We really had the application part of today's text. And one of the beautiful things of preaching through the word of God is you come across every subject matter because Jesus dealt with real life. I need you to open your Bibles to two passages, Matthew 7 and Luke 6. And we're going to go to Luke 6 second, but Matthew 7 we're going to open with as we continue through this section of the Gospels called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We have been, if you're visiting with us, and I know many are returning after summer, school's back in session, our college students are arriving, we're glad to have them back, uh, that this is a season to get re-engaged. And so let me tell you what we've been talking about since November. As we've gone through this gospel series, we've seen movements in the life of Jesus as depicted by the colors and the ebb and flow up and down uh, trajectory of Jesus' life is depicted on the staging behind me. And we've talked about the arrival piece and how that was a period of time in which the prophecies were fulfilled and Jesus arrived. There was the obscurity piece about his being raised and trained and then when he began his ministry and then we entered into the season called the recognition, which is the third movement of the five in Jesus' life. And that's where we sit today and we're heading toward conclusion of that and we're in the particular part of the recognition where Jesus begins to preach this sermon over and over to people, inviting them to be a part of his kingdom. Now, we're in the last phase of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. It's found in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we begin in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I don't know if this is actually research-driven, but I heard someone say it once, and I tend to believe it's true. said, 50 years ago, the most famous verse quoted by people in the world who didn't even go to church was John 3.16, for God so loved the world. said, today, the most quoted verse is Matthew 7.1, judge not, lest you be judged. It's epidemic. It's one of the reasons that people don't want to come to church, and it's why people don't want to have anything to do with the church, is because sometimes the church isn't nice. Sometimes the church is mean. And because of this, Jesus addresses to these kingdom people, judge not, lest you be judged. And this has always concerned me. So what can I do and what can't I do? I have two sons. Am I never supposed to look at what they're doing and say it's wrong? It's wrong. 
Am, am, I, am I never able to say that's not healthy, that's not good, you shouldn't do that? Is that what Jesus is telling us? There's this tension between, there's a standard of holiness found in the Bible, and there's also the standard of humanity that's far less than the standard of holiness. Are we just to let people go a direction that's going to kill them? Is that what Jesus means when he says, don't judge? Because the world, when it quotes it to us, says, how dare you tell me what I'm doing is wrong? This is what Jesus addresses. How can we understand his teaching about not judging others? Well, I'm going to boil it down very, very simple this morning because I I want to point out what it is and what it isn't. First of all, it's like everything we've talked about. Anger, lust, contempt, lying. All of the issues that Jesus has addressed so far in the Sermon on the Mount are the same principles here. He's, He's asking us to question, why are we doing what we're doing? And that will reveal why we shouldn't do it. And so in light of all of this, how do we restrain this standard? And so is Jesus simply saying, don't judge people and let them know you're judging them? Because I'm going to tell you this. Being silently judgmental of another person is worse than actually telling them you're judging them. And this in lies why I think a lot of people want nothing to do with the church. Because they see people who go to church each week who are no different than them, and they choose not to go to church because at least they're spiritually honest about their pursuits. So Jesus says, don't judge. But what's interesting in the scripture is there are five different ways to judge. Five. Two of them were asked not to do. Three of them were allowed to do. So today when you leave, let's have a better understanding of what Jesus meant when he said, don't judge lest you be judged. So let's focus. Let's talk about the realities of the judgmental life and what Jesus points out why we shouldn't do it. First is, we only end up hurting ourselves. This is what he's trying to warn us about. He's talking to apprentices in his kingdom, people joining his kingdom. He's said all are invited. He's talked about the tendencies that we all have and how they can, they can stop us from going where we want to go, short circuit our whole spiritual uh, life. And then he, he's inviting us. He says, don't judge. Luke 6, verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I love this verse because it reminds me of my grandfather. My grandfather was a wonderful man. I loved my grandma and grandpa. They lived right in South Bend. They lived five miles from our house. When I got mad at my mom, I got on my bike and I went to see grandpa and grandma. It was their daughter. They needed to fix her. And I would go tell her all about it. Well, I would go to their house with my mom sometimes or with our family, and my grandfather had the candy jar, which is now in my office, one of my favorite possessions. And I'd say, Grandpa, can I have candy? My mother would say, Mark, you don't need any candy. And my grandmother, my mom would say, you can't have any candy. And my grandmother would say, you shouldn't. We're about to have dinner. And my grandfather would motion me over. <laughs> Love that man. And my mom would say to her father, Dad, I told him he couldn't. And my grandfather would always respond this way, who's your father? And she'd say, you are. And who's my grandson? And I would go, I am. And then my grandfather, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, would grab his big, gnarly masonry hand, shove it in that jar, and load my pocket full of candy. It looked like I had rocks. It was amazing. I'd look at my mom going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. Jesus said, listen to me. The standard by which you treat other people doesn't obligate God to treat you the same. It only releases in you and for you his goodness. Church, are you with me? 
He's not saying if you do the right thing, God will give you a special reward. No, God wants to reward you, so let him. Do God thing, not your thing. You see, we only end up hurting ourselves when we realize that when we treat God's children, and now this is what I started with this morning, remember. The reason we opened with it was to set the tone that every single person, whether they're good or bad, religious or not religious, is made in the image of God and has value. Every single one of us. So when we treat someone as different, we not only harm them, we harm ourselves because it hurts our relationship with God. Now, let's just be square and honest today since it's an intense morning. If you're cool with not being good with God and just receiving his blessings, you're no different than the Pharisees and the scribes, and this is what Jesus was addressing. If doing the right thing for the wrong reason is all you're after, if wanting the blessings of God without a relationship with God is what you're after, you're no different than the scribes and Pharisees. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Unless our righteousness surpasses that, we're not a part of the kingdom. We only end up hurting ourselves. Secondly, we actually know less than we know. It's one of the reasons we're asked not to judge people. Because we really don't always know what we think we know. We have a good guess, but it doesn't mean it's accurate. Here's another translation of those verses. Don't judge others and God won't judge you. Don't condemn others and God won't condemn you. Forgive others and God will forgive you. One of the reasons I use that particular translation is it actually identifies the two words that Jesus uses here. Judge and condemn. These are the two we're not allowed to do. To judge means to come to a conclusion about someone's motives. It's to judge their heart. Jesus said, you don't even have the beginning clue how to do that well. You don't know their heart. So don't do that because you're inaccurate. Now, sometimes we know people really well and we're really like 98% accurate, aren't we, wives? Yeah. Okay, so you're with me. But it doesn't mean we're totally accurate. We don't always understand. So he says don't. Don't judge a person's motives. Don't judge their soul. Second, condemn. Don't condemn, which means to lay on a damning subject, to say to them that that person is already lost, already gone. They're too far gone to even, even understand Jesus or accept him. Jesus said, don't do that. Don't judge someone's heart and don't judge their eternal destination. Those are the two things that are reserved for Jesus. I'm going to say it here and I'll say it at the end. And the reason we don't do it is because in his lifetime here on earth, Jesus didn't do those and he had the right to. Are you with me? If he chose not to do what was his right to do, then you and I shouldn't, certainly should not do what's not our right to do. We don't judge a person's heart and we don't condemn a person's soul. There was a man, this is a true story, told by a nurse in a hospital. There was a man, he was cantankerous. He was just a pain. And he was mean to his wife, he was mean to the nurses, he was demanding, he was just outrageous. And he went into surgery. When he came back into his room after he came out of the anesthesia, uh, when he came in, they had drawn the curtains in his room to keep the room dark. And the moment he awakened, instead of saying, am I okay, and is everything fine, he began to complain and he began to rip on his wife for every little thing he didn't like. And she was so weary, the nurse said. She was just so tired of being beaten down by this guy. He just was grumpy. And he questioned, who drew the curtains closed? And the nurse recorded that this little old lady looked at her husband and said, oh, there was a building across the street that caught on fire and we didn't want you to wake up, look out the window, think you died and we're in the afterlife. (laughs) 
I'm glad you laughed. First, ser- first service judged me. Okay. <laughs> you see, it's an easy thing. Think with me. It's an easy thing to see the path the person's on and conclude where it's going to end up, right? It's okay. Let's just admit that. You can see someone who's destroying their life and realize this isn't going to work out. I say this to Braden all the time, our youngest. I love that kid. But I'm like, B, you're so much like me. It didn't work out for me. It's not going to work out for you. He doesn't understand it until he tries it himself. I was the same way. It's easy to see a path a person's on and realize this isn't going to end well. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's saying is to give up on them. Because let's be honest, didn't our path head us in the same direction and we were saved from it anyway? So to to quit on a person because where they're headed isn't going to work out is not what Jesus did with us. Why should we do it with someone else? Next, no one is valued when we choose to judge. What we've been talking about now for weeks is that the kingdom ethic is to value every single person, whether we agree with them or not, but find the value in who they are and search for the value. Show them their value. Verse 39, can one blind person lead another blind person? Won't they both fall into the ditch? What he's pointing out is, if you can't see how God saved you and showed you mercy and grace when he should have showed you just a judgment and condemnation, you'll never offer it to anybody else. Or as one preacher said very clearly, you and I cannot see clearly how to assist our brother and sister if we don't see them as a brother and sister. We see them as someone who deserves this. But if they deserve to go to hell, then don't we? Because what saved us was not that we're better than anybody. What saves us is that Jesus was better than everything. And he offered us that hope. You see, our hearts will not condemn those we love, and we do not love those things we condemn. See, F.B. Myers, a preacher, said, when you see someone in sin, you have to realize three things you don't know. Number one, you don't know how hard they're trying not to. Number two, you don't know the influences that are on them right now that have broken them. And number three, you don't know what you would have done under the same circumstances. So that's pretty humbling, isn't it? We don't know the motives of their heart. We have no right to conclude their final destination. Those are reserved for Jesus alone. And the reason Jesus asks us not to do this is because our hearts are exposed. When we judge and when we condemn and when we won't forgive, we're revealing a heart that's not of the kingdom. Look at verses 41 through 45 with me. You can see the speck in your friend's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye. Now, listen, what's funny about this is this is a form of humor that doesn't always translate to the Western mind. But in Jesus' day, the crowd would have been chuckling. It's ridiculous to think of a man who has a tiny speck in his eye being helped by a guy who's got a tired tree branch over his face. It's so ridiculous that the crowd would chuckle. He said, how can you say, my friend, let me take the speck out of your eye when you don't see the log in your own eye? You show off. First, get the log out of your own eye, then you can see how to take the speck out of your friend's eye. He says, if you're pointing out the weakness in another brother, but you don't really care about him, all you're doing is pointing out the weakness, and they probably don't even need to know that because they probably already know it. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You can tell what a tree is like by the fruit it produces. You cannot pick figs or grapes from thorn bushes. Good people do good things because of the good in their hearts. Ah, this is the point. Bad people do bad things because of the evil in their hearts. Your words show what's in your heart. He said, I'm telling you not to judge because when you judge, you don't love. See, I have five trees in my front lawn. I know because I cut and weed eat around them every week. 
I have five trees. Now, just on a, on a straight level, looking out on my yard, standing in my driveway, you know, looking at the whole 20 feet I own in all the world, I can tell you I have five trees. But by paying a little more attention, I can tell you this. I have four trees that are alive and one tree that's dead. I don't know much about plants and trees and all those things. But when I look up at one tree and it has no leaves on it and all the leaves are brown and nasty and already on the ground in August, and I see all my other trees are green and and producing beautiful uh, leaves and they're blowing the wind and they're gorgeous. And when the wind and rain comes, it doesn't even knock them off those trees. You slam a door in my house and five leaves fall off the dead guy. I'm not very smart, but I know that that tree's dead. Why do I know it? Because when I look above to its fruit, it's producing nothing. So I got to find a dude with a chainsaw because that tree's going to come down because it's ridiculous to let a dead tree stay in the middle of the yard hoping it'll come back to life because it won't. It's the second year in a row. I'm pretty smart, huh? <laughs> I did my research. <laughs> I believe in resurrection, not of a tree, though. So that tree's going to come down. Jesus said, you know, when you look at the life of a person, someone who's judging and condemning and belittling and not caring for and just writing people off, they have a dead heart. They haven't been made alive by hope. They haven't been made alive by grace. See, there was a mother who had a five-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter, and they were playing in the room, and she heard a squeal, and she heard her son crying, and she ran in the room, and her son was holding his hand, and she said, what's the matter? And he said, the baby bit me. And the mother grabbed his hand and saw that the skin wasn't broken. She looked at it, and she said, okay, you're going to be fine. She goes, it's okay, honey. She just doesn't understand how bad that hurts. The mother left, and a few minutes later, she heard a squeal, and she ran back in the room, and the little girl was sobbing. She looked at the little boy, and the little boy said, she now understands. We have to be really careful as Christians that just because we know the truth, that we don't shine the truth of Jesus on the sin of a sinner instead of on the path that they need to go. Church, are you with me? If we use the truth to expose people so they can be mocked and made fun of and feel helpless, is that what Jesus did? No, we show the light of Christ on the path ahead of them so that they know it leads them to hope. You see, Colossians 3.13, Paul wrote, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Do not judge and you'll not be judged. This truth permeates the scriptures. I could, for the next hour, no exaggeration, show you Bible text after Bible text where we're told Our desire to judge and condemn does not reveal a heart of the kingdom. It reveals a heart of someone who's trying to build their own kingdom over the souls of other people. So let's conclude quickly here. Are we ever right when we judge? Is it it ever okay? Well, I've already told you the answer to that, right? There is. There's three ways that we can make judgments without judging someone's motives and without condemning their soul. So here they are. You can test something's worth. The Bible tells us this. You can analyze something to find out if it's valuable or if it's not. You might have a diamond or a piece of jewelry. You can take it to someone who knows real value, and they can tell you the value of that is this, and that's better than you could have done. You tested its value. Against what? Against standards. So it's okay for Christians to have a standard of holiness and not allow somebody or not encourage them to continue in a standard of worldliness. Because you're trying to test the value of their life against what Jesus has proven. Let me just show you two scriptures. 1 Corinthians 11. We're told to examine ourselves. 
So if you want to not judge, start on yourself. Look at your own life before you start talking about the speck in someone else's eye. Let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In the presence of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, we are told not to examine if we're good or bad, but to look at our lives. Are we living for the one who gave everything for us? 1 John 4.1, John wrote, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. How do you know whether they're from God? How do you know whether this inclination you have or this leading you have or this desire you have is of God? Look at the scriptures. The will of God never conflicts with the word of God. So no. You can also verify truth. So you can test something's worth and you can verify whether something's true. In fact, uh, Luke, when he records in the book of Acts the history of the early church, actually gives an attaboy to a church who not only heard the truth, but made sure it was true. Acts 17.11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now I'm going to say something. Please don't take this as a slam, especially for those of you visiting. But it concerns me quite a bit. I love this church. I, I love it. However... It concerns me when I look out at an audience and I say, hey, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 and less than 50% of the audience has brought any device, any scripture in front of them. Let me introduce myself to you. My name is Mark Christian. You shouldn't trust me. How do you know that what I put on the screen is accurately in the scriptures? You trust. Well, he wouldn't lie to me. Have you met me? People go off track in religion when they follow a leader instead of following Jesus. Have the Bible available to you. Why? Because if all you're getting is this small sample, it would be like trying to survive on that bread and that juice we pass out on Sunday morning. Not enough to sustain you. So test, verify the truth. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, they examine everything carefully, holding fast to that which is good. You can make judgments. You will make assessments. It's important that you do. It's vital that you do. And thirdly, you can discern or question things or people. This goes back to what I said at the very beginning, if you remember. I have two sons. Do I, as a dad, am am I supposed to never, ever question what they're doing or the value of what they're doing? Absolutely not. I have permission. In fact, I have responsibility. I need to discern what they're doing and who they're with. Yeah, there's friends of my sons that I'm like, I'm not so sure. So we have a conversation. You better be leading that relationship instead of following because the hope of the gospel works. 1 Corinthians 14, 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. Discern. Process. Test. Verify. Discern. This is what we're told to do. And if you wonder, when is it okay? What is that final test? Then let me remind you of this. The will of God is found in the life of Jesus Christ. Look how he judged, condemned, test, uh, tested, verified, and discerned. Was Jesus always nice in a social setting when the truth was being called a lie and a lie was being called the truth? Absolutely not. He called one group a group of, he said, you're a bunch of baby snakes, referring to the serpent in the garden. To others, he said, you're whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're empty. Jesus wasn't mean, but he was direct. He did not say there's no hope for you. He said, what you're doing is not right. So how do we balance out standing up for the standard of Christ 
and loving our neighbor. We do it the same way Jesus did it. Study his life, act like he acted, apprentice under him, and you'll find the balance. You see, our hearts will not condemn those we love, and we do not love those we condemn. I'd like to close this morning with Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. My friends, you are spiritual. He's talking to the church. So if someone is trapped in sin, oh, I love that. One of the reasons I love the contemporary English version as a readable Bible is it just, it captures the essence. It said trapped in sin. No, he doesn't call them sinners. He said they're trapped in sin, even if they're willingly trapped in it, they're trapped. You should gently lead that person back to the right path. You obey the law of Christ when you offer each other a helping hand. So what does this all mean? Well, we open with this big, intense political statement, right? We talk about the unity of the Lord's Supper and the unity of our giving to people who have a need. And I come out here and I tell you, listen, there are some things that we do that we're not asked to do, and there are some things we can do that will be helpful, not hurtful. So how do we test and verify and discern that encourages hearts? We do it the same way Jesus did it for us, by offering us a reason to change Now listen, I don't know, I had never met anybody in my entire life. Introduce yourself to me, please, if you want to. But I've never met a single person who came to Jesus because someone got up in their face and said, turn or burn. I know a bunch of you came to church because of that, but you didn't come to Jesus. But Jesus didn't do that to us, did he? Jesus didn't say, you better obey or I'm going to smoke you. Jesus said, I love you. Let me love you. I forgive you. Let me forgive you. I took your punishment. Let me take your punishment. That's an easy guy to follow, isn't it? You see, here's the standard of the day. Judge not because you were not judged. You were restored. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.